the Sacred Gyre Podcast, staying connected to your deepest values as you work for change. When I started this podcast series in 2022, I said that I wanted to invite the listener into a conversation about how to stay connected to your deepest values as you work for change. I believe that such a conversation, when genuine, can feel vulnerable. In this episode, I will talk about some of my own thoughts on parts of my life as an activist. I hope that will illustrate some of the things that can cause an ordinary, good-hearted human being to act in ways that do not reflect their deeper values. I believe that it can be valuable to be vulnerable in the way I am inviting others to be, even though it can be vulnerable for me. <laughs> so what values did I grow up with that motivated my activism? There were several foundational ones. I had a sense from a very young age that I was brought into the world for a basic reason and it had something to do with love. By that, I mean love in the sense of caring for all life, including especially our fellow human beings. I have no explanation for how I came to believe this. Indeed, it wasn't even a belief in the sense of an intellectual or rational thought. It was an internal sense I just became more aware of, and as I grew into my 20s, did take on some specific beliefs. I also learned from my dad a sense of fairness and the responsibility to treat others with kindness. My dad was born in 1915 and grew up in a world where racist beliefs were much more openly held, a time when a much higher percentage of Americans had little concern about expressing them openly. He wasn't immune from some of those beliefs, but he would not treat another person unkindly. He was a middle-of-the-road liberal Democrat. And his values came in part from my grandfather, a Southern Baptist minister who refused to go into the pulpit and tell his parishioners not to vote for Al Smith in 1928 because he opposed religious prejudice. The order to preach against Al Smith had come down because of a widespread fear of Catholicism and the Catholic Church. I grew up with that and other stories that became a part of my own beliefs about what it meant to be a good person. I was also aware that my ancestry included great-grandparents who were Cherokee. I read about the forced removal of the Cherokee people in 1848 and other historical facts about indigenous people's history. I loved reading about history and wanted to learn more. I knew about slavery representing a serious contradiction to America's founding documents. I saw the Civil War as something akin to a second revolution along with the short Reconstruction era that was ended violently with the enforcement of Jim Crow segregation, lynching, and economic discrimination. I saw these things as wrongs that needed to be righted. I believed in basic human rights for everyone, the words of our Declaration of Independence that said, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, 
that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I'd begun hearing about the Civil Rights Movement. I also had negative life experiences that informed how I reacted to political and social issues in my youth. My birth mother suffered from mental illness in the form of depression all her life. She was neglectful of my sister and I, and that was part of the reason my dad divorced her. He met my stepmother at work and soon remarried, all this by the time I was two and a half years old. After World War II, we moved to Schenectady, New York, when he got a job at General Electric. We moved into a nice home in a middle-class neighborhood in the city that his job allowed him to afford. We weren't there for all that long when we started experiencing discrimination. For my sister and I, it showed up when kids from down the street told us that their parents said they couldn't play with us because our parents were divorced. Also, my parents were agnostics, and as my dad later said, it was seen to be disgraceful for a middle-class person to be seen to be home on Sunday morning. So they started taking us to the Unitarian Church when I was very young. To escape social isolation, we had to move out of the city and pretend that our stepmother was our birth mother. She and Dad started having more children almost immediately, three sons starting when I was three and a half, and she began to experience depression herself. For several years, she would verbally berate and whip my sister with a leather belt. She was ashamed of what she was doing and never treated us like this in front of my dad. He would come home from work to find her crying and complaining about her life, including us kids. He would take her upstairs and basically act like her therapist. By the age of six, I also knew that I was different in a way that I didn't have words for, but today we would know as being born transgender. I knew this would be seen as shameful and the beatings and denigration from my stepmother already had me feeling like I was a problem and not worthy. I worked hard to punch those feelings deep into my gut and spent decades of my life denying them. That made it much harder for me to feel my feelings in general. These negative experiences caused me to have a high value on the truth and on intellectualism and a dislike for hypocrisy and for violence. In short, I believed in love and kindness, the rights of all people to live their own lives peacefully, and to be respected as who they are and our obligation to make sure everyone is fairly treated. We are all very complicated human beings, and of course there is much more to how I became the person I am, but this I think is enough for the purposes of this podcast. As I grew up, I was determined to read and learn more and to act on my beliefs and values. I went to the March on Washington in 1963, the summer after my freshman year in college. 
I had a lot of respect for the people who were organizing against Jim Crow and other ways that racism affected black people, and I felt a kinship with the nonviolent beliefs that motivated the march. Years later, I wrote a prose poem called The First Steps about this experience that you can see on my other website, www.butterflyarose.com on the performances page. In college, I applied for and received designation as a conscientious objector. This was partly about my aversion to violence and partly about my growing awareness about the war in Vietnam and different materials I'd read. I also joined the Socialist Party, never having met anyone who belonged to it, by sending a letter to an address I found in a book about organizations in America. I'd read about Eugene Debs, the labor movement, and what many ordinary people had done to form unions. All of this was in alignment with my deepest values at that time. I offered to help others who might want to explore becoming registered as a conscientious objector and did a one-person protest in front of the local draft board in my senior year in college. By this time, I was distressed by the way that official college courses failed to address topics of racism and war and wanted to have a fuller discussion. The most energizing college experiences for me were twofold. One was when the Independent Students Association, of which I was the president, opened a coffee house in the basement of a small men's dormitory. We offered a space for music, poetry reading, and open conversation about whatever people wanted. It was a relief from the way in which college social life at the time was mostly organized around the fraternities and sororities. There was also a lively artistic debate over the war in Vietnam. People who opposed it and those who supported it would create posters and put them up in a stairwell of the student union building. For a time, there were long lines of people on the stairs, slowly walking up or down, looking at all the posters. The summer after I graduated from college, I also held a one-person picket against America's involvement in Vietnam in front of the United Nations building. After college, I lived in New York City for a year or so and was able to actually attend a Socialist Party conference in person. At the conference, I met a member from Cleveland, Ohio. They had a youth organizer who was leaving for another position, and he offered me the job. I accepted and moved to Cleveland that fall. I got involved in the anti-war movement and found other young people who were active there. I really liked the Socialist Party people I met as well. They were all older people who had been involved in social justice movements for years. Some of them had worked in the factories and been a part of the labor movement. But they also seemed too timid to me. They quietly participated in anti-war demonstrations, but I wanted to speak out more forcefully. This was in part because the war was escalating, and in part because I could see how working-class people were the most likely to get drafted, and if they were black or Hispanic, they were the most likely to be put into the most dangerous roles as soldiers or sailors. In addition, 
the conversation around the war in Vietnam, especially among those who supported it, involved a lot of racist ideas. I soon found others in the Cleveland area who agreed, and we started the Cleveland Draft Resistance Movement. I left the Socialist Party and got a job in the factories as a machinist. All this was happening in the context of the backlash against the civil rights laws passed in 1964 and 65. Some of it was violent, like the murder of people organizing to help black people register to vote in the South, and some was a more determined use of social and economic means to enforce segregated housing and jobs all over the country. To me, this looks similar to the beginning of the violent repression that happened after the Civil War, and I was becoming impatient with the ways in which disparate treatment continued. I had been reading Marx, Engels, and Mao, along with a variety of African-American writers, among others. I was searching for an intellectual way to explain what had happened in American history and what was happening at the time. My own life experience around discrimination against divorced people and their children and the generations-long power of racist beliefs even among otherwise well-meaning and even liberal-minded people, gave me a sense of the power of cultures and the devastating effects that the negative side of cultures can have on innocent people. When I heard the term cultural revolution, I thought it had a lot of truth in it, that we in the U.S. needed a revolution in our culture to end the ways in which women, cultural and racial minorities, and working-class people were demeaned and faced difficulties in life that were caused by social, economic, and political factors. At the same time, there was a divergence in the civil rights movement. Many young people especially were angry at what seemed like the slow rate of change and were inspired by national liberation movements around the world. The rhetoric in the movement was becoming angrier, and there was an increasing attempt to call out and criticize people who were seen as being too accommodating to the system as it was. I was affected by this as well, and it caused me to go along with ways of categorizing people as sellouts or reformists who we saw as too willing to quietly accept the status quo. Some of the things we did were both militant and successful to an extent. One example was demonstrations at the local draft board on days when youth were brought in to be inducted. We would send our people out to the outlying areas to quietly board buses bringing in inductees. As the buses headed toward downtown Cleveland, they would quietly hand out leaflets, explaining to the other youth that there was going to be a demonstration at the induction center, but that it wasn't against them, that we sympathize with them. The demonstration was against the government and the corporations profiting off the war. This was very positive in helping them understand we were not against the soldiers, but it also went against my underlying beliefs by demonizing the government and the corporations in a way that was dehumanizing. There was plenty of wrongdoing by people in those groups, 
but our way of talking about them missed the reality of why people end up in those positions and end up doing what they do. In the short run, it helped us by letting the draftees know we were not against them. In the long run, it contributed to the sort of mindless arguments against elites that are used by populist organizations today. We saw ourselves as working against the silent enemy, the force of old beliefs and habits, laws and power structures that can keep injustice alive. And our search for a comprehensive theory was motivated, at least in my mind, by two needs. To uncover and popularize the truth about where discrimination comes from, and to have a countervailing theory about how to end it. My friends and I ended up forming a small Marxist-Leninist group, and in my youthful mind, this was the answer. In the end, while we had some interesting experiences and short-term effects on the larger political movements, the organization became irrelevant and was ultimately dissolved. Long before that happened, I had become inactive due to persistent depression and because of the ways I had spoken and acted at times against my own deepest values. Let me be clear. I have no regrets about my participation in those mass movements, not even about coming to embrace Marxism-Leninism for a while. The underside of our American culture needed to be exposed, and there is nothing wrong with becoming attached in your youth to a particular ideology that you later see different. And Karl Marx, the anti-capitalist, like Adam Smith, the pro-capitalist, was both right in some ways and wrong in others. What is more important in terms of doing better at staying connected to my deepest values was the ways in which I let my anger at oppression overpower my deep sense of the importance of living in a loving way. I was willing to dehumanize others or to not speak up when I saw it happening around me and that caused me to go against my deepest values. Let me use a concrete example. As I became more militant, I left my job, as I said, as with a socialist party and began working in the factories as a machinist. This was the beginning of a 30-year career. At one point, I was invited to join with a United Auto Workers union leader to work with him to reform the UAW. He really liked the militancy and devotion to justice of our group. He offered to help me get elected president of one of the larger UAW locals. He envisioned us becoming part of a coalition to rebuild the union as an advocate for positive change. He just wanted me to stop talking about Marxism. I refused without a lot of discussion. We saw him as just one of those reformists who would let the old system survive with a superficial change, someone hopelessly lost in the old ways and not worth the time to interact with much. If I had helped to my deepest values, I would have engaged him in a longer conversation, not because of him having all the answers, but to take him seriously as a well-meaning person doing his best under difficult circumstances. That does not mean I would have accepted his invitation, but in taking his offer more seriously, 
and engaging with him as a well-meaning person, I might have changed his perspective. And even more importantly, I would have learned a lot from him. At the very least, I might have developed more nuanced ideas about how to work for change. I don't want to present this too one-sidedly. I loved working as a machinist, both because I liked the work and I liked the people I worked with. At times, we would have lively political conversations, something I couldn't imagine doing in any job that my sociology degree would have qualified me for back then. It was just that I was too locked into the ideas, the theory, and this made me somewhat rigid in the way I reacted. I was also living with the results of the repression in my youth, the need to hide my parents' divorce out of fear, the self-hatred I ingested around being transgender, and the results of having to swallow the pain of being physically and emotionally abused by my stepmother were still with me. I survived this youthful experience by shoving my feelings into my gut and getting on with it, as was expected of someone forced to live as a guy back then. For me personally, Strong ideas were a bulwark for a while against the depression and repressed feelings. It wasn't just us Marxists who did this. It wasn't just us Marxists who did this. The spirit of the times, among other youth, supported having a clear ideology and sticking to it no matter what. We read a lot. We thought a lot but our reading got filtered through what we thought we knew and was colored by our anger at the injustice around us and determination to have a strong theory about what to do. And every individual person had their own reasons why they acted in this way. My journey through these years was complicated both intellectually and emotionally. I saw American history as having two violent revolutions and one peaceful one. The first American Revolution was based on a statement of freedom, but was violently denied to both black people and the indigenous nations who were here before us. The Civil War I saw as the second American Revolution, along with the short period of Reconstruction, when black people and poor whites gained a large measure of political freedom denied to them before the war. That was followed by a violent counter-revolution that ended with Jim Crow discrimination, the rewriting of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution by the Supreme Court in a way that eviscerated much of their power and the strengthening, after 1900 especially, of segregation everywhere. I saw the laws passed and Supreme Court decisions of the 1950s and 1960s as a third nonviolent revolution, and it was followed by a backlash that I and other youth believed would also be followed by a violent backward step. The fear I experienced and anger at the backlash against freedom for black people and others is what allowed me to silently justify going against my own deepest values in some ways. That fear was understandable given both the then current circumstances and what I knew from reading our history. I was also angry and impatient with the slow progress in the culture and systems in my country.
This was also understandable given both my personal experience and my studies. The problem was getting attached to my feelings in a way that prevented me from being more discerning in how to react. And like many young people, I got swept up to a certain extent in what seemed like a consensus about what was the right way to respond. Similar strong reactions were common, and it would have taken effort and risking being sidelined to actively disagree. If I could talk to that young person that I was from my perspective today, I would have encouraged them to find ways to reconnect to their deepest values, to make decisions with those values always in mind. Ideas are important, but they can take you into poor decisions if they are not tempered by underlying values. Some of my values I followed, others I didn't. I would have advised my younger self to live by this one at least. Everyone is just another human being trying to do their best given their circumstances, and how you treat them is just as important as the extent to which your ideas and beliefs are true. We are, I believe, creating the new world by how we speak and act in this moment. Thank you for listening. If you would like to be notified of future episodes, please sign up on the contacts page of sacredgyre.com.